Hello everyone and welcome to the Campaign Podcast, where we chat about advertising, media and marketing. I'm your host today, Omar Oaks, Campaign Media and Tech Editor. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Facebook's Nicola Mendelssohn, where we'll be talking about Facebook's new book, Build Brilliant Brands, and their recent upfront. But first, joining me today is Simon Gwynn, Campaign's Deputy News Editor. Simon, hello. How are you? And where does lockdown find you? Um, I'm not too bad at all, thank you. Um, Lockdown finds me in Glasgow, where I've been for the last... Uh, what is it, seven months now since uh, since March. Pretty glum up here. We're not allowed to go to the pub. We're not allowed to go to restaurants. Um, you can't go into anyone else's home. Um, but, you know, um, life goes on. Yes, yeah, so, so I'm looking at you um, in Scotland and wondering if it's a portent to the future in England, whether we're all going to not be able to go to the pubs and all the rest of it. Um, did, did you kind of have to get it out of your system before these draconian measures took place? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I did go for a, a last uh, dash to the, uh, to the pub the night before everything kicked in, as plenty of other people seem to be doing as well. But yeah, there have been a few instances this year, I think, haven't there, where Scotland's introduced something and then... England's followed suit a couple of weeks later, so um, there could be a worse to follow. Mm. See, um, you're you're part of our international uh, campaign team. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, Simon, you're our deputy news editor, so it seems appropriate. Let's talk about some news. And um, the big story we've had over the last couple of weeks at campaign is Nick Emery's departure from Mindshare, the WPP mm-hmm. media agency. Um, so Nick, um, he was there since the beginning of Mindshare over 20 years ago uh, when WP created it um, out of J. Walter Thompson. Um, so he leaves after a long time. The details are there in stories that we've done um, and since picked up by tabloids uh, that he um, did something inappropriate on a internal video conference call, uh, namely took his device into the toilets and thought it'd be funny um, to uh, conduct the meeting in part from there. Um, now, Simon, somebody on Twitter complains that, you know, Emery was being turfed out after more than 20 years and had done some brilliant work and he's being turfed out after, you know, one mistake. Regardless of um, this particular incident, do you think more generally it's become a minefield for agency CEOs where one slip up and you're out the door? Well, I think it's inevitable that uh, the the, uh, demands on uh, people's conduct in in senior roles like this is is going to go up. Uh, The fact is he was, I don't know what his his salary was, but he was being paid a lot of money. Anyone in that kind of position um, was getting a lot, um, uh, you know, uh, from their uh, side of the bargain. And uh, I think it's reasonable that that, um, they're they're held to... um, particularly high standards if he'd been a more junior person it would have come across as particularly harsh I think you know kind of uh, uh, ending someone's job and, and possibly threatening their career for it but when you're in that kind of position uh, it's not crazy uh, if you look back to last summer um, the CEO of the former CEO of McDonald's Steve Easterbrook was uh, was sacked um, and that was for having a consensual relationship with um, an employee with a, a colleague um, at the time, there was no indication that he'd done anything wrong other than that. You know, there was no kind of uh, foul play uh, alleged. And I think at the time, you know, a lot of people felt that that was, that was a bit unreasonable in this day and age. But uh, if, uh, if McDonald's want to hold their staff to, uh, to that kind of um, standard, then, then that's up to them, really. Um, and I'm sure Steve Easterbrook knew beforehand uh, that, that that was the, uh, the rules he was agreeing to. Subsequently uh, emerged, of course, um, this summer, that um, actually um, there'd been a, a little bit more going on. And uh, I think there's um, possibly some ongoing uh, legal issues between McDonald's and, and him. But uh, yeah, just another example there of, uh, of why um, I think if you're if you're going to be the CEO of a company, you have to put yourself in a position where you can't possibly uh, fall into any of these kind of holes. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think um, behind what um, this commenter was saying when talking about Emery is thinking, oh, you know, it was just a joke it was something that you know anyone could do um, but it's interesting that you you make that comparison with Steve Easterbrook um, but from my perspective it just seems as though if you're in that position where you're CEO of a huge organization you know part of WPP like McDonald's 
list publicly listed company, frankly, there are just things that you can't do. Um, and if you're Steve Easterbrook, that means you know not having relationships with employees, albeit consensual. And if you're Nick Emery, it means not doing pranks in the toilet during a Zoom call. Yeah, I think there's um, there's an issue um, here that, that uh, I've not seen particularly picked up on uh, about, you know, when we consider whether this was a proportional thing to, for him to lose his job for this. I don't think it really comes down to the fact that he um, took his laptop into the toilet and, you know, urinated or uh, showed his bum or whatever it was that he may or may not have done. Um, it's not about that specific action. Uh, it's about the people who he was on the call with. If that was a relatively small group of people who were his very close friends, colleagues, um, I think the fact is that, that they wouldn't have reported him or, or it's less likely that they would have done. But clearly there was somebody on that call with him who either didn't know him very well and so didn't have any kind of sense of who he was. But um, he um, was in a situation uh, where he should have realised that uh, he was asking for, for trouble because of who was on the call. They're completely entitled to, to take offence, to be upset, to complain. I think, you know, if, if people kind of imagine themselves in that situation, they might say, well, you know, I wouldn't report my colleague for, for doing that. But obviously it depends who it is. Um, and if it is someone very senior and you don't know them very well, um, then then maybe you would. Um, I was speaking to... We've been speaking to a lot of people who work within and outside WPP. And one person in the company said, you know, we've got this whistleblower hotline. What was the alternative? And, you know, they said something interesting. They said, if you can't be your best self at work, and that means if you're made to feel uncomfortable by an incident like this, then the company's got to be seen to take an action. And we've had, you know, in the past couple of years, we have the Gustavo Martinez incident and the JWT CEO. Listeners might remember that huge legal battle over here. Um, his behavior um, and of course Sir Martin Sorrell who essentially founded the d- business as is um, and presided over it for many decades and he's not there anymore because of um, an alleged misconduct issue which you know he has always denied but nevertheless he's not there anymore um, so I think it's an example where if an incident like this happens and there was footage of it by the way used as you know evidence against him internally um, then I think the company does have very little alternative. Yeah, um, I don't know uh, if this would have uh, this story would have factored into the uh, decision making at WPP at all. But um, uh, you know, one of the year's most striking stories is certainly to be Dominic Cummings' little um, journey uh, adventure to uh, Barnard Castle um, earlier this year. And I think most people, whether they're supporters, defenders of the government or not. Um, would recognise that that, that has um, uh, damaged the authority of the government um, to ask people to adhere to these uh, regulations that we're all having to live by at the moment. Because um, to a lot of people, uh, Cummings was, was seen to have um, you know, opted out of following the rules himself. And when he is um, arguably the second most powerful person in the country, um, it's absolutely vital that, uh, that people like that, yeah, I think are seen to be uh, to be following the rules. Um, I, I wouldn't say that that's a, a particularly similar uh, situation to uh, to one that, that Nick Emery found himself in. Um, but I think some of the same principles basically apply there. Yeah, politics is a funny old industry where you can you can essentially comp- go completely against your organization's values, namely, <laughs> don't do this thing. And then, you know, you go ahead and do the opposite. And, you know, the attitude is, you know, F off, don't care. Funny old business. Simon, Deputy News Editor, any other stories catch your eye this week? Uh, well, I think one of the big themes of the year has been the ways that um, uh, brands have kind of teetered on the edge of uh, getting involved in politics with, with some of the things they've been doing in response to the COVID situation, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and other things like that. Um, and uh, in the last week, we've seen a whole load of brands um, signing up to get on board with Marcus Rashford's uh, campaign um to uh well first of all he's been trying to encourage the government to uh, extend free school meals over the school holidays um but uh, alongside that there's been a big effort from um, business uh, charities community organizations and so on to themselves uh, provide uh food for um for for, for kids in um, in disadvantaged families being pretty interesting as having a look at the uh, story in the metro um to see which uh, businesses were, uh, were were getting behind this, and um, uh, unsurprisingly, it listed a whole load of kind of small independent businesses 
The first one of which on the list was uh, my parents' local pub in Sheffield, which I'd just like to give a shout out to there. It's a very nice place, recommended, isn't it? Uh, yeah, shout out for that. What's it called? The Greystones. The Greystones. Uh, shout out, Greystones. Well, well done, you. Um, this is really interesting. Um, Ten years ago, I suppose it would have been a truism, if you like, that brands shouldn't get political. Um, but we are starting to see companies get involved more and more in political issues, aren't we? Um, is this sort of the new normal? Or do you think we're in some sort of phase? Well, uh, I certainly wouldn't use the phrase uh, the new normal um, myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're not allowed to use that. <laughs> we must not use that. Um, that needs to go. Uh, that needs to be right at the top of our style guide. Never, ever use the, the phrase the new normal. Um, but yes, uh, if, if you allow me to backtrack slightly on that, that policy. Yes, it is definitely the new normal. Um, I think uh, with things like uh, this story around free school meals, um, it's it's um, kind of um, it's become toxic for for brands to not uh, be getting involved in things like that. It's debatable whether how political it is really um, to to be saying oh we're we're going to be providing uh, meals for, for for kids who need them. Um, but obviously there is a political backdrop in that it can be seen to be taking a stand against uh, what what the government's doing. When there's things like this that a whole load of companies are on board with. Now, when I read about them, I'm often keeping an eye out for who isn't involved. Uh, I don't think there's much benefit. There isn't really a PR story, uh, a benefit, you know, a corporate um, positive uh, story to be told about saying, like, we're involved in this thing. Uh, it's more an issue of uh, if we're not involved, then that can, that can become uh, quite toxic. The challenge for brands, I would say, is to keep an eye on uh, how these things can eventually unfold. We might see, uh, especially if we end up in a, a worse recession than we're, we're fearing, you know, we might see that there's increasingly an ongoing demand for uh, companies to be involved in, in solving problems like hunger and poverty. And uh, companies need to have a strategy for how they're going to uh, keep doing that in a way that is actually constructive and positive. Um, and uh, makes a contribution that is viable and sustainable, you know, within their, their business models. What's changed? Is it social media? Just just the fact that you're just going to get a load of angry tweets and Facebook messages if you're if you're not getting involved? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think we all recognise that Twitter isn't real life and it isn't the real world. Um, but I think that consumers and members of the public are just far more informed than they were in the past in a whole load of different ways. And we know things about the way that business businesses operate that the people in their previous generations never would have been aware of. And, and I think that's uh, why it's important for, for companies to think about all of those things and to have them kind of closely connected with their marketing and their messaging. Uh, you can call that purpose-based marketing or whatever you want, you know, if, if you choose to. But um, but I think it's, it's to be embedded in the way that businesses operate, really. I think... Less than brands becoming more humanistic in terms of sharing, you know, lending support to political beliefs and becoming more political generally. I think what's happened is it's responding to actually people becoming more like brands. Social media has enabled that. So a lot of how we interact with each other on these platforms, it's very performative. Everyone's thinking of themselves as a brand and who our values is and am I being consistent? And so I think I think it's all part of that communication mix now, isn't it? And so the more that people have become brands, brands are becoming more people. I think that's kind of this this thing that's happened in the last 10 years via social media. The danger is brands ultimately are still there to make money for themselves, for shareholders, for their employees. And I think, I, you know, I can't help um, recalling the um, Facebook Black Lives Matter boycott over the summer, where, you know, for, for one month, you had a lot of brands saying that they're going to temporarily take away spend from Facebook over their policies towards hate speech and all the rest of it. And, you know, they've all quietly come back on since, best to my knowledge. And I do wonder if something like that is actually worse than doing nothing at all. Um, do you think that that's a, that's a danger if you know if you're going to be in this if you're going to be in the politics game you've got to really be in it? Yeah, I think that comes back to what I was saying about having a sustainable idea of what you're what you're doing and how it ties into your business strategy and and they absolutely they should uh, if they feel like they can they should boycott um, those those platforms or they should consider it. Um, but yeah, if they do it for a month and then they come back later and they don't make any effort to really explain and communicate why they've done that, then they're not going to look um, credible. People are becoming, uh, consumers are becoming more aware that brands are, are run by people. So there is definitely kind of a, uh, an intersection and a, a meeting of those two things, though, isn't there? 
three words describe yourself as a brand simon what's your brand um oh not a brand <laughs> not a brand very good that that sums up quite well the way you answered that um anyway before we go to our interview with Facebook's Nicola Mendelssohn, I, I want to mention the big awards shortlist is out. This is our big oh, industry awards, uh, the best creative work in the UK over the last year. And interestingly, Uncommon, the relatively new agency um, by the ex-Grey London trio, um, Uncommon has got the most shortlists uh, for the big awards this year, which is exciting. Um, the work includes... Britain Get Talking, which did very well at the recent Media Week Awards, by the way, um, for ITV. And Everything's Better on the Beach for, for On the Beach also um, did well. Also Mother Ads for KFC, and shortlisted nine times and worked for IKEA. Um, so lots of good stuff. Please check that out on campaignlive.co.uk. Right, Simon and I will be back in a bit to talk about some ads of the week. Here's our interview with Nicola Mendelssohn. And I'm joined today by Nicola Mendelssohn, Vice President of Facebook in EMEA. Nicola, hello. How are you? Where does the campaign podcast find you today? Hi, Omar. It, I'm good and well. And uh, you find me in uh, in Northwest London on a pretty grey day, but I'm good. Ah, Northwest London. I was, I was I spent my formative years in Northwest London. Represent Kingsbury. Uh, very good. Um, now, Nicola, you've been at Facebook for gosh, has it been seven years now? I think of you as an ex Karmarama person, but um, you've not been there for some time. Um, explain for listeners uh, your background and what it is you do at Facebook now. Yeah, so grew up in the north of England and came to BBH straight out of university in Leeds. It was a very small agency then, uh, not like what it is today. Spent 12 years there, then I went to uh, Gray for five years, Kamarama for five years, and then, as you say, uh, joined Facebook uh, to head up uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa back in 2013. And it was definitely a, a much smaller company, um, and it's been the most extraordinary uh, seven and a half years of my life. Mm, I bet. And um, so you work closely with Carolyn Everson, who is Vice President of Global Marketing Solutions uh, at Facebook. And so uh, you and Carolyn are among the people at Facebook who who are close, I guess, to working with the marketers, um, which puts you in a I guess, very influential and um, important position. Um, explain to listeners on a week to week basis um, what conversations you're having and um, maybe <laughs> I don't know how much you can reveal, but kind of what are the conversations that you're having um, with big brands about marketing on Facebook? Yeah, well, one of the things that I absolutely love about my job and in fact about my whole career is that no two days are ever the same. And yeah, I am in the privileged position of being able to talk uh, across countries and across sectors and verticals with different organizations, both from the very largest clients and also the very smallest clients about what it is that they're looking to do and looking to achieve. And there's some very common themes, and especially in this period whereby we're seeing this extraordinary shift to digital and really helping, you know, at the heart of everything I'm doing when it comes to the business side is very much around how we can help uh, our clients and our partners, our agencies uh, to grow. That's the most important thing, because ultimately that's what marketing is all about. It's about how you help a business find new customers, connect with old customers and sell products, wares, services. Mm, indeed. And um, we'll get on to talk about um, this new book, um, this very shiny, iridescent book um, that Facebook <laughs> and you've launched called Build Brilliant Brands, uh, which is by the Facebook EMEA Client Council. Um, so we'll get into that in a second. But before we do that, um, you have... Um, a preoccupation um, that you've you've had in um, the last couple of years um, has been um, this incurable cancer, um, which I think is follicular um, lymphoma, um, which you were diagnosed with. Um, it sounds um, unusual. I'd not heard of it, but I'd heard about your diagnosis. Explain um, what it is and how you're getting on. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. I'm, I'm actually doing well. And I was I was diagnosed in November 2016. You know, as we're talking, I can't actually believe that it's you know coming up for four years since I was diagnosed. Wow! And I'd never heard of it either. Follicular lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's um, lymphoma, a blood cancer, and yet it's the most common of the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. I think there's a bit of a taboo about people speaking out about incurable 
uh, diseases, especially ones that you can live with. And what what struck me pretty early on was the fact that a nobody had heard of it. And there is a, th a correlation between uh, illnesses that have a bit of fame and the money and the research that's directed at them. And so last year, um, I actually set up a foundation to be able to attempt to find uh, a cure for the cancer. And the scientists tell me it should absolutely be possible if it has the funds and the research to do so. So I am determined um, to find a cure in my in my lifetime. Mm. And um, is it difficult to get funding when um, something um, is, a, is apparently so rare? Well, it's certainly difficult to raise funds uh, in, in, in a pandemic. <laughs> uh, speak to any charity that, that, um, that is going through that at this time. The, the unique thing about this cancer is that it shares a lot of the genetic mutations with 73 other cancers. And because this is a smoldering illness, Actually, and, and that includes cancers like the incurable part of breast cancer and the incurable parts of prostate cancer. So actually, if you can spend the time to find cures for something like follicular lymphoma, it will actually have a knock on benefit to be able to actually aid the treatments of so many others as well. So I'm hoping it isn't going to be such an impediment. And I have found people to be generous, but we always need more money. So if anybody uh, is interested in helping or interested in supporting uh, the website is theflf.org, and I'd love to hear from you. Couldn't help that, Omar. Forgive me for giving a good old plug. <laughs> it really matters to me. No, believe me, it's one of the better plugs that, um, that we've had on this podcast, believe me. Um, and so is this something which, um, I've, uh, having read around it, is this something which is usually found in men, this kind of type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma? And um, I, I'm interested to know, what was the reaction um, when you kind of... Um, when, when you um, announced that you had this um, incurable cancer? Yeah, you're right. Um, the typical uh, diagnosis or patient that is diagnosed is a 65-year-old plus man. So to have got it when I was 45 and apparently young, fit and a woman is, is pretty unusual. Although what's interesting is that um, I have, there's a group on Facebook that I'm a part of called Living with Follicular Lymphoma and there's a lot of very young people in the group that are living with follicular lymphoma. So... Maybe it's not good to have a, an image in your head of who should or shouldn't get this. Being diagnosed with something like this is it's just horrendous. Um, it's horrific. Mm. It's all those worst things that you can imagine and some just hitting at you. And it, for me, it, it, it was a very physical reaction as well as an emotional turmoil as to how I felt. I, I mean, I, I couldn't stop crying. I was I couldn't eat. Um I lost like half a stone of weight in the first 48 hours just from just from the physical reaction. But really? that's not going to happen. Yeah, it was awful. Absolutely awful. How people treated me was was a mixture, to be honest. Um, there were those that were just incredibly supportive and you like, what can I do? They want to get into action. What can they do to help? There were people that just did not know what to say. And it was really uncomfortable. And it was almost on me to broach how to how to help them speak to it. I was lucky to be in a in a workplace. Facebook was unbelievably supportive, uh, and has continued to be the whole way through. Uh, that's really wonderful to hear. And and so so you are okay now. You are you um you you're okay. I am, I am. I had um I had some treatment about two years ago, and I get, and I I am in what is a, a type of remission now because the whilst you can't see the cancer, it doesn't show up. It's still there on a minuscule kind of microscopic level. Uh, or it's called minimal uh, minimal residual disease. And the doctors don't know when it's going to come back. But the typical per person that has FL will probably have between six and eight treatments in their lifetime. And you get weaker each time. And of course, there's a shorter gap then between uh, each of the treatments. So I'm hoping that I've managed to push it out for the longest time possible. But, uh, but I am one of those patients who were impacted by COVID. And so I did have to stop my treatment. I was having a maintenance treatment that should have lasted two years, but I lost the last six months because it was felt that actually going in and having treatment at this time would be versus catching COVID wasn't worth the risk. And my blood mm. cancer uh, patients are actually in the most vulnerable um, ca category that in the UK uh, was instantly classed as shielding. Uh, so, so you've had to shield during the pandemic, obviously. Yeah. 
Very much so. Very much so. Uh, I've not been out really out. I've not been to a shop or a restaurant or any of those things that, you know, a few months ago would have just taken for granted. Oh, I, I feel for you. I mean, so, so many people have been affected in such um in such difficult ways from this whole pandemic and um even though it's terrible um, that so many people have died it's you know it's, it just affects so many people in so many different ways that you don't expect um but you know we're glad that um you, you are okay yeah i i am good and i'm practicing gratitude and i am grateful for what i have and as you said there are many people and and, you, and your heart has to go out to the people around the country and the world who are just going through the most awful experiences. So mine pales in in significance in comparison to some of the things people are dealing with. Yes, and it's good to be talking to you. Now, let's talk about this book, this shiny silver book uh, called Build Brilliant Brands. So you've got different chapters who are written by various marketers and um, senior agency people. Um, These people sit on Facebook's client council in EMEA, don't they? And people like uh, Alini Santos from Unilever, um, Dean Aragon, chief executive of Shell Brands, Benjamin Braun, uh, the chief EMEA marketer at Samsung. Um, So they all kind of um, have a chapter where um, they're saying um, pearls of wisdom and marketing theory. Um, Explain, um, who is this book for? How has it come together? I'm so excited to talk to you uh, about the book. And I wish we could show people how lovely and beautiful the book uh, actually looks. But the the book is the creation of the EMEA Client Council. and And it was something that I set up, it's about six years ago now, And the whole purpose of the council, and it's important just to spend two minutes on this because it explains why the book came about, was was all around driving conversations that can lead to action around the future of marketing, around the practices and the business of. And so we do have this uh, amazing collection of uh, people leading agencies, people leading marketing departments from all over the EMEA region. And there are 22 chapters in the book. And... What's been really clear is that there is so much change and there was a real kind of consensus. Uh, this, this started before COVID about the need to how we can help to drive the industry forward, because as consumers are changing and companies are changing, people have to adapt or, you know, basically you risk not being here if you don't keep pace. So the book is a collection of hard worn knowledge and decades, decades of collective experience uh, from the, you know, the amazing members of the EMEA Council. And the book is for, well, it's for anyone interested in marketing, but it was specifically written with a lens of inspiring the next generation of marketing leaders. But actually, all my peers that are reading it are just, you know, getting a huge amount out of it as well. So, um, yeah, that's the book. Mm. Um, it's interesting. You've got your own section on there um, talking about e-commerce as well. Um, and so explain what, um, what what is the client council for those who don't know? Um, are these people who get together in meetings at regular intervals? And if so, what do you, what do you all talk about? Yeah, we do. We absolutely do come together several times a year. And interestingly, we've actually increased the frequency um, during lockdown because there is so much going on. Uh, and so much uh, a desire to learn from one another. But the book really uh, encapsulates that as well. And, and, and I should say that the book doesn't come to one conclusion. There's many different debates and discussions in the book where people actually completely disagree with one another. But uh, we structured the book um, to be around what hasn't changed in marketing uh, and the likes of uh, Ian Wilson from Heineken talking about that or, or Mark Ritson being very vocal that the core principles around and the basics will never change. And then there's the things that are changing the industry. And Alini, who you mentioned, she has a whole um, chapter on uh, on purpose being a priority and that actions speak louder for words and, and the same is true for brands. And then there's the question around how you move the industry forward. And that's much more focused on what actually needs to change. And so in, in here are things like... Um, the issues of diversity and, and Karina Wilshire, the, the global CEO of Anomaly, she picks up on this, that actually marketing needs to be ahead of and to lead cultural change. And perhaps it isn't so at the moment. And, and Benjamin Braun, who you also mentioned, um, and it's probably it's one of my favorite chapters in the book where he he references, you know, the, the late great David Ogilvy around we sell or else and really saying that marketers need to adapt, become more numbers based. 
um, need to understand and, and play almost to the, the jargon and the language of the boardroom of the CFO and the CEO. And if you can't prove your value, then you, you could come across as reckless. And, and, and then you mentioned my chapter, which, you know, fits here as well, which speaks to the fact that, you know, the shift we're seeing and the shift to e-commerce wasn't something that was unexpected. What was unexpected was, was the shift of speed and the acceleration that happened so, so quickly. Mm. Um, and our data says that we've seen 10 years of change uh, in the last 150 days. That's extraordinary acceleration. And so companies do need to think about and rethink about how they engage with customers. And we've seen some great examples about that. I'm thinking of how Nestle partnered with Deliveroo uh, in the UK to provide, uh, you know, their range of, you know, chocolates and sweets directly to consumers' doors. But it needs to happen across the entire, this, this thinking needs to happen across the entire consumer journey, not just at the end of it. And people... Um, are increasingly discovering brands and products online. So you, you need to think about, and businesses need to think about how they generate fresh demand. And we've seen firsthand at Facebook how powerful discovery can actually be. And so, you know, that's one of the things that um, my chapter is focused on, the, the whole issue of, of discovery commerce, because actually, um, you know, if I think back to the very early days of Facebook, it was very much a pull word. You were searching for specific things. And then the engineers created Newsfeed. And it sets almost a precedent for how people consume most of the content now on their phones. We weren't used to it then. And today it's the expectation. And so consumers, I think, expect to discover things from brands. And that's what the heart of the uh, of the chapter is about. Mm, it's really interesting. Um, I guess the perception from the outside um, and, you know, a, a lot of people were saying when um, the July boycott happened, uh, Facebook over Black Lives Matter, um, that, well, how much is this really going to impact Facebook's revenue? Because so much of Facebook advertising is coming from, I guess, what you call the long tail, um, these kind of um, small to medium sized businesses who you know, they wouldn't be the, you know, they wouldn't even have marketers, let alone having marketers that would be in a Facebook client council. Um, so I guess the perception is from the outside that um, Facebook is, you know, it's, it, there's so much kind of long tail advertising um, that you wonder how influential nowadays big brand marketers are. Is that a fair assessment or not? Well, I think there's a few parts um, to, to, to your question. First, if I, and, and let's take them uh, in order. The, the first one is around the boycott itself which, you know, no company wants to be boycotted. And especially, but the really unusual thing about this one is that normally when something like that happens, it's because you've got two different sides that have very different goals. Um, and that wasn't the case with this because actually we share the same goals as the boycotters and we've been investing, not, not just in the last few months, but over the last few years. Um, especially on the area of, of hate. We don't want hate on our platform. And I also, you know, I want to make a really important point here, which is I think people think that we profit from hate. And, and that is just not true. Um, we don't want this stuff on our platform. We don't believe people want it on our platform. And certainly advertisers, of course, don't want it either. And I also think it's important to say that when, you know, when you most majority of people go on their, go on their Facebook or their Instagram, they're having a great experience. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't keep coming back. On the whole, they're there because they want to engage with their friends, their family, brands, you know, entertainment, all those different sorts of things, community groups, health groups. That's why they're going on. But I think we, we need to, and we've had this feedback, do a much better job at explaining and defining um, what we do and how we take hate down. And that's something, some of the feedback that we've had with uh, civil rights groups, the conversations they've told us. And I think... What you've seen from us um, increasingly over the last 12 months is an increasingly aggressive policies and a much more efficient enforcement as well. And actually, that's been acknowledged. The, Euro the European Commission um, last month actually showed that Facebook removed more hate speech that was reported to us than our peers. And we did so more quickly as well. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to work with GARM, the Global Alliance for Responsible Media, to align on brand safety standards and definitions and how we scale education, common tools and systems. So we're making those changes, not because of the pressure, but because it's um, the right thing to do. 
but it was you know it was a very difficult and very challenging few months no question of that yeah and I, I suppose it would have um, led to difficult conversations among, you know, just the the kind of people that be writing in this book. Your your, your most senior um, advertisers on Facebook. Um, was it fair to say that there were um, difficult conversations among them? The uh, the truth, when you have a strong partnership, that you strong partnerships are based on the ability to be open with one another, and for both sides to be critical friends to one another. So yes, yeah, some of those conversations were difficult, were challenging, and. You know, I think what has certainly also been true is that for the most part, advertisers can see and recognise the efforts that we're actually making, um, especially in these areas. And they, you know, they're pleased to see that progress. Mm. Um, from from the outside, um, well, particularly kind of across the pond, um, you look at um, what happens in the US and, um, you know, there are various things which Mark Zuckerberg was quoted as saying, you know, um, reportedly saying that, oh, you know, advertisers, they'll be back, they'll be back, don't worry too much about it, was, you know, the inference of what he was saying. Um, and I was, I was kind of struck because um, in the UK, I think there was something like 3,000 people that work at Facebook in the UK. And um, even though the characterization might be of um, a company which um, Mark Zuckerberg obviously controls um, with, um, you know, his um, outsized voting rights and founder status and all the rest of it. Um, there's a hell of a lot of people that work for Facebook across the world nowadays. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to know how, what's the mechanism for, if, you know, there have been reports of people that have been unhappy with various policies towards uh, moderating hate speech. Um, is it, is has Facebook been doing work behind the scenes to make that a more fluid process for how people kind of voice concerns internally without things being leaked to the press? And you're right, first off, there are um, just over 3,000 people now working uh, in the UK and the UK is a really important um, country for us. It's our largest engineering hub outside of the US uh, and it's a place that we're committed to continuing to invest in as, you, as you'll have seen from um, the announcement we made at the beginning of the year with the, with the King's Cross uh, expansion. One of the things I've always loved about Facebook, actually, is the fact that we do have an incredibly open culture where actual different debates, uh, different discussions and points of view are actively encouraged. And Mark Zuckerberg every week does an open uh, live Q&A where people can ask questions either live or in advance. Uh, and the most popular ones are voted on and, and get pushed to the top. And so he always takes those as the start point. For any organisation, when you get leaks, that's something that's incredibly disappointing. But this has never been a, an environment where people don't feel that they can you know, share their views, share their opinions. And I think that's a really important part of our culture as well. And that includes on, on the policies. But I also want to be very clear about the, you know, the rigour, the care and the thoughtfulness that goes into the policy making decisions that we have into something that we called our, our, our community standard uh, guidelines. It's, it, you know, if you like, it, it's a rule book. It's not a fixed book because human beings are not fixed. Um, you know, you can have difficult, different uh, situations that can happen in different parts of the world. You can have new words that, um, sl you know, slang words or that can come up and we need to be aware of those. So there's actually multiple people in the team that looks at the policy, which is reviewed every week, the different policies. We have people and we bring in expert advice from outside as well, working with civil rights groups, depending on the topic, could be health groups. Um, it, there's a lot, you know, a lot of lawyers that work in there as well, because there's different legal advice um, that needs to be taken into account, might be law enforcement. So before we make a policy change, you know, there is a huge amount of rigour that goes into that decision and a very, you know, a, a big group of people of informed experts that make that decision. That's interesting um, because um, one of the criticisms you hear quite frequently is that Facebook's very reactive. It's it's not proactive enough. It it it, it seems to never see things coming um, when it's you know the. Um, you know, that dreadful um, Christchurch, New Zealand um, terrorist attack that was live streamed and people were reproducing it on Facebook and other platforms, by the way. Um, but, you know, there are various instances where um, where it's hate speech, where it seems like Facebook's always reacting to things. But in terms of what you've just said about kind of um, how long kind of the, the rigor that you're trying to apply for things, is it just the case that because of the way policy formation works because of how quickly digital media seems to move that Facebook is always going to be unfortunately one step behind because it's trying to do things rigorously and it can't necessarily preempt certain incidents that are going to happen. I think um, 
I, I would want us always to be thoughtful, but I would want us also to have the ability to be agile. I mean, we're a tech company, so we, we know how to be agile. But sometimes I think that has that has caused us pain or, you know, damage reputation because of the fact that we want to be thoughtful before we'll maybe move out and, and make a difference in, in a change in the policy. And we need to work through what the re- potential repercussions could be, not just in that moment, but with other countries, you know, religions, races, whatever, whatever it might be around the world. And by the way, all of the guidelines are we publish them. They're all out there so that people can uh, see them. The other thing also that I think is a really important part of this conversation is the fact that, you know, artificial intelligence is getting so much better because of the uh, the way in which uh, it's progressing, but also through the investments, the billions of dollars of investment that we're making into this area. So when you combine that uh, with, um, with the, you know, the 35,000 people that we have that are doing the content review as well, content moderation, that's where you get, a, I think, an increasingly powerful um, combination in terms of what we can do and take down. And we publish now quarterly um, how we're doing against nine key areas, which include things like hate speech, they include things like terrorism. And you can see over the last few years the, the really substantial jump that we've made, especially in the area of hate speech, where just uh, I think it was about three years ago, we were only finding about 23% of that proactively. Now of the stuff that we take down, 95% of it is taken down before it even hits the platform. And so that gives me hope and encouragement that, that the systems and tools are getting stronger. But we know that there is more that we need to continue to do. And we know that it is our responsibility to continue to invest to, to get more of this stuff down as quickly as possible. Mm, it's a hell of a lot of content out there, which um, is um, the issue. Now, I want to talk to you about um, these upfronts. We're speaking on the um, a couple of days before um, Facebook is due to announce um, its upfronts. Uh, this podcast will actually come out, so we're not going to break any embargoes by talking about it now. Uh, can you re- can you reveal uh, what Facebook is going to tell the industry? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that we're going to be looking at, and I guess the theme for the Facebook IAB upfronts this year is all about the fact that this is a year of acceleration. Um, we've seen some extraordinary trends and we were talking about some of them earlier that are happening in media and business, but also where our platforms can play into these trends and where the societal conversations are that are accelerating across the world and leading us to a more representative um, society. So we've got a a number of speakers um, and very exciting speakers. So we'll be looking at some of the changes in media, uh, the rise of video, some of the changes in media consumption um, that we've seen. We'll talk about uh, and we'll be sharing more about the dramatic growth of Facebook Watch around the world and some of the opportunities there for businesses and brands as they invest in Watch and also um, in stream video as well. And then we'll also talk uh, more about the discovery commerce piece that you and I were talking about, which was uh, the chapter in my book as Mm. well. And, you know, the, the, there'll be a couple of uh, sessions from actually some of the people that are that are in the book as well. But I think it's also important, and we'll be touching on this in the upfronts around the societal trends and the changes, the big conversations that are happening in society and culture as well. And again, I think those, everybody would probably agree, have grown in prominence uh, through lockdown as well. And as I say, the book uh, started before um, before COVID was was even on our horizons. But interestingly, it plays a very important part in in the uh, the chapters that you see as well. Yeah, certainly, it's a, it's a it's a quickly moving situation, and um, there's always something happening in terms of the new restrictions and how the economy has to adapt and all the rest of it. Um, that is certainly true. <laughs> yeah, but Nicola, um, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks very much for. Um, coming on oh thank you so much it was great to talk about so many different things um with you and i look forward to the day where we can actually see each other in person yeah it's meetings in person uh it sounds like such a such a wonderful novelty now uh but nicola uh thank you and catch you next time all right take care nicola mendelson from facebook there simon are you a regular facebook user what's your social media uh platform of choice yeah, I, I have them all. Um, I still have Facebook and I still kind of uh, log on automatically, frequently, find that there's not much going on. But for some reason, I haven't got around to uh, deactivating my account. <laughs>
It's funny you say I still have Facebook, like it's this really old thing. I can still remember very clearly in what, 2005, when you used to, you know, if you were at a certain university, not even any university, a certain university with an email address, only you could go on Facebook and it was like this exclusive club, but it was like really cool. It was very exciting, yeah, when, uh, when Facebook came to my university. <sighs> and now your grand's on it. Anyway, let's get to some ads. Our first offering today is by Amazon. It's promoting the Alexa talking voice assistant product. Uh, let's have a quick listen. Oh, what? I'm trying to die here. One more time for the player? Yeah. <clears throat> sure, man. No problem. Well, I love y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, rewind 10 seconds. Uh, this ad is by Droga5 London, and as you expect, it's quite funny. Uh, the, the ads playfully illustrate um, the Alexa's ability to help people, including uh, voice commands for watching a TV show. Uh, Simon, what did you think? Uh, I thought that, so there's two ads here. Um, they're, both, uh, they're both very funny, uh, excellent productions. Um, they continue a long run of, of really high standard uh, work from uh, at least three different agencies. There's uh, Droga5, Joint uh, and Lucky Generals, all have done very, very good work for the brand. One thing that strikes me is that I think Amazon's got a really confident, creative voice. Uh, they have a lot of humor, obviously, in their, their work, but they, they take quite a few different approaches. You know, some of their stuff's uh, more moving or kind of offbeat. Um, and uh, none of it seems to kind of undercut the, um, you know, all fits within the, the, uh, the brand vibe. Um, but I'm going to use that opportunity actually to just kind of segue into uh, something else. So they, they've just released a new um, uh, the Borat sequel, Borat subsequent movie film. Um, and uh, have you seen any of the um, the advertising for for that? I've seen the trailer came up on my YouTube's, but I have to say uh, I'm not actually on social media that much, or I don't try to be. But I've just seen a hell of a lot of content marketing for Borat, uh, not just talking about what Rudy Giuliani apparently did in the hotel room, <laughs> but um, you know, just like there's a TikTok where you know Borat's driving, you know, driving a lorry into a car, and you know, just just all this crazy stuff popping up. So yeah, the marketing has been fantastic. Yeah. Um... So yeah, the marketing for, for the film has been great, but uh, it was actually a story in the that's been in the news today that I uh, uh, wanted to mention, uh, which is that um, uh, the nation, uh, the great glorious nation of Kazakhstan, has uh, officially adopted uh, Borat's slogan. It's very nice as its uh, uh, as its advertising uh, catchphrase. Mm, that's actually very nice. which I think is, is wonderful news because Borat is, a, you know, it's a very, he's a very offensive character. It's an extremely offensive depiction of Kazakhstan. And I am in two minds as to whether we should regard it as uh, acceptable. Uh, I have to be honest with myself. But I think um, it was always an opportunity for Kazakhstan to market itself as a, as a destination. Uh, I'm sure it is a beautiful, fascinating place. And I bet the people there are lovely, just as they are in, in you know, every country in the world. Um, and all they needed to do was, have a have a sense of humour about um, uh, about their depiction in, in Borat, and um, uh, you know the opportunity was there for the taking. Yes, uh, becoming brand aware, you might say. And um, you know, if if you're a Kazakh member of the ad industry and you have strong views on this, please write to Simon Gwynn at Campaign. <laughs> Our next ad is by EE. Uh, it's called iPhone Envy, and it's by, of course, Saatchi and Saatchi. Let's have a quick listen. I can't believe you're finally mine. The new iPhone 12 Pro on EE, the number one 5G network. That network. Those edges. That camera. That camera. You even come with the full works plan for iPhone. There is nothing left to want. And nothing I want more. Will life ever taste this sweet again? That could be you, Doug. And guess what? Simon Kevin Bacon is the voice you can hear. He's in it again. Uh, what did you think of the latest Bacon E ad? Uh, I I don't even know what to begin to think of these anymore. They're, I I found I didn't find it funny. I didn't know if it was meant to be funny. I don't know if Bacon's been doing these ads for so long that we're meant to read them on some kind of different level. Maybe after a while they'll start to become engaging again you know when things drag on so long you kind of go through this dip and then subsequent rise um but yeah I, i'm not into it 
I, th- I suppose it's just that familiarity, such a familiar face, and that's kind of what you want from a telecoms brand, I suppose. I actually I got the the new iPhone, and I kind of waited in the Kingston Vental Centre to get one, um, and you know I can report that it's slightly better than last year's. Um, so um, very exciting. Um, okay, let's just move on then. <laughs> Our last ad we're looking at is uh, Greenpeace new ad from them. Uh, it's called "There's a Monster in My Kitchen" by Mother. There's a monster in my kitchen, and I don't know what to do. It has wicked, glowing eyes and a snake-like tail, too. Oh, jaguar in my kitchen. Now I do know what to do. We'll eat more plants and veggies and we'll swap meat for bean stew or barbecue tofu. Now, this is a sequel. You might remember, Simon, um, the Rangtang ads they did a couple of years ago where they, they was a sort of orangutan. Uh, and now they're talking about a displaced jaguar. Um, and, you know, this is meant to highlight the global consequences of industrial meat production. Um, what did you think of Jaguar? Um, it's another very impressive film. It's, uh, it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways to, uh, to Rangtan. It's the same style of animation, same style of uh, voiceover, uh, same kind of script. Um, uh, but uh, it's probably even darker, actually, the, uh, the visuals of it. Um, it really reminded me um, even more so than um, than Rangtan of uh, the original Watership Down film. A lot of people uh, will be aware is, is one of the all-time great um, psychedelic horror films. And uh, yeah, it's very powerful. It really gets the point across. And uh, I've got a feeling that this one, um, this new film from Greenpeace, which um, is all about the destructive potential of the meat industry, um, is not going to be um, commandeered by Iceland for their Christmas campaign this year. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful storytelling device, isn't it? To kind of tell a story through the eyes of a, a child and a children's story. And that immediately made me think, funnily enough, of um, what's the name of that um, Emily Blunt and John Krasinski film? Is it A Quiet Place? Uh, where you have to be quiet, otherwise the monsters are going to get you. And that—that that is just purely, you know, a children's kind of um, trope, if I can use that word. Um, and they've just turned it into a movie. And it's so simple, but it is actually incredibly powerful. I've not seen that one. Is it worth a watch? Oh, you should see it. And just before the sequel comes out, which I think is imaginatively called A Quiet Place 2. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Campaign Podcast listener. And thank you also to Campaign's Ben Nonsborough for editing and co-producing this podcast. Remember, you can get all the latest industry stories and see the UK's latest ad campaigns on campaignlive.co.uk. Until next time, please stay safe wherever you are, listener, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.